following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. That was an extraordinarily nice introduction, Craig. He tells me every year, we give you this slot because it's a compliment. (laughs) And then um, I had meatballs and sausage for lunch. This is going to be interesting. Um, Thank you, Craig. And I would like you to uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This may be the worst slot in the conference, but it certainly is one of the most important subjects in the conference. And I don't say that in a self-serving way. The role of the Holy Spirit in counseling is something that, uh, that we need to talk about. And so let's take our Bibles and we're going to turn to the text. I even asked Craig if there was going to be some music to get, give my meatballs a chance to digest. He goes, nope, you just start. So, <laughs> all right. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony or the mystery of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message, my word, and my preaching were not in the persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we come into your presence this afternoon and we, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that he, through the veil of his own flesh, has opened up to us a new and living way. We thank you, Father, that we have access to the throne of grace. We thank you that you're never too busy to hear our cries and our pleas. And so, Father, we come to you this afternoon, and we need your help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would help us to have alert minds. Father, even though our bodies may be weary, and sitting here after lunch, Lord, is such a physical challenge, but, Lord, we know that you are greater than any physical challenges that we face. So we pray for your grace and your help now. But Father, we also pray for the help of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the Word. Father, we pray that you would use this time and empower it by your Spirit. We pray that the exposition and application of your Word would be empowered by your Spirit. Father, if, if, if the Spirit does not come and help us, this will be an exercise in utter and complete futility, but... If he does come, 
If he does help, if he does illuminate, if he does empower, Lord, this will be for your glory and for the good of our souls and the souls of the people that we help. And so, Father, we plead with you to help us in this hour. And so we ask this in the name that's above every name, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. I can honestly say to you that I would, I would never, ever preach another sermon ever again if it were not for the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit did not accompany the preaching of the Word, I would, I would find something else to do. There is, there is this Lord's Day by Lord's Day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade since, where the things that we're doing are, are so dependent upon God and His Spirit that if preaching were merely a, a human endeavor apart from God's Spirit, I would not do it at all. But because God has given us His Spirit... We preach, and we preach with boldness, and we preach with confidence, and we preach with the expectation that this is God's work, not ours. And what I want to suggest to you this afternoon is that the very same conviction that I just expressed about preaching, that I would not preach if it were not for the Holy Spirit, should be true of what we say about our counseling as well. That if it were not for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, we should never ever want to try to open our mouths in counsel to help somebody else through the Word of God. And so as we look at this subject today, I ask first, I mean, how important is the Holy Spirit in counseling? I mean, is it, is it good enough just to have IBCD certification? Is it good enough to have ACBC certification? Is it, is it actually just good enough to have a degree in Bible or a degree in theology or even a master's in biblical counseling? Is that actually enough? And my answer to that is no, it's not enough. None of those things in and of themselves are enough. And so if we try to counsel people from the Word of God without the power of the Spirit of God, then our efforts are going to be reduced to self-sufficiency. Our efforts will be reduced to, uh, to technique. Our efforts will be reduced to trying to figure out how to manipulate people. And there is one thing for absolute certain, and that is if we attempt to counsel people from the Word of God apart from the power of the Spirit of God, there will be no lasting change. Let me say without equivocation that counseling without the help and the power of the Holy Spirit will never bring about lasting God-glorifying change. Now, I am first and foremost a preacher. And that's the, that's the hub of my, my life calling. 
And so as Craig and I were talking about the subjects and started talking about the, uh, the necessity of the Holy Spirit in counseling, I immediately started thinking about it in light of, in light of preaching. Now, I know that preaching and counseling are not the same. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what I want to do for us is I want to take this text, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I want us to actually work expositionally through this text, which is first and foremost about preaching, but then I want us to see how those lines of connection and applicability go straight over to biblical counseling. And I think that the connection should be clear to us because at the heart of preaching is the explanation and application of the Word of God, hopefully in the power of the Spirit of God, and what is biblical counseling? Well, biblical counseling should also be the explanation and application of the Word of God in the power of the Spirit of God. So, we begin, and this is, this is where I need your, your, your grace and your perseverance and your tenacity to stick with me as we go through this text verse by verse, all right? So, the first two verses, Paul is going to deal with the subject of biblical preaching. And he states it, first of all, negatively in verse 1. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the mystery of God. Now, when, when Paul says, I did not come to you with superiority of speech... That, that word speech is actually the, the Greek term logos, or of wisdom. Paul is not saying, I wanted to come to you as a simpleton. I wanted to come to you as a country bumpkin. I wanted to come to you as somebody that just didn't know absolutely anything. When he says superiority of speech or wisdom, these are actually technical terms in Paul's world for what could be classified as classic rhetoric. The classic rhetoric was the use of, of, of clever argument. It was the use of emotionally charged speech that was designed to actually persuade people. That was the goal of classic rhetoric. That's, and, and that's what Paul is, is, is looking at. You have to remember that in the first century, one of the predominant uh, modes of entertainment was actually professional rhetoricians who would go around and actually give incredible speeches that were awfully entertaining with the goal of trying to persuade people to their position. And in fact, the more uh, outlandish the position, the more skilled the rhetorician could demonstrate he was in his speech. And so the rhetoric was based on human ability, it was based on human wisdom, it was the craft, it was, it was the spin, it was, it was the sophistry to move people and to persuade them. Dr. Dwayne Litvin, who has done a tremendous amount of work on first century rhetoric, points out the finality of truth was not the concern of the rhetorician. He simply wanted to influence opinion. 
And so the goal of the rhetoric was to uh, employ human ingenuity to exalt the speaker and to move the people. And so Paul says, when I came to you, that is emphatically how I did not come to you. I didn't come to you just simply with persuasive rhetoric that was designed to wow you. And then he has this expression, when proclaiming to you the mystery of God. I think mystery, if you have a New American Standard, it says testimony. I think mystery is actually probably the better uh, reading. But mystery obviously refers to God's saving work in Jesus Christ, which is revealed by God. And so Paul, Paul is actually saying something here that should, should catch our attention, and that is that the mystery of truth is something that's revealed by God. It's not truth that is, that's discovered by human beings. It's not discovered by human investigation. It's not unfolded even by human argument. In fact, human beings, says David Garland, don't find this truth. It finds them. And so Paul says, when I came to you, I didn't come to you like the rhetoricians who had their their fancy speech, their wise words, their Sophia, their wisdom that was so impressive to you. And then he states it uh, positively in verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him having been crucified. And so Paul says, "When, when I came to you in Corinth, I made a conscious decision of what I would and would not do and what I would and would not focus on. I made a conscientious decision that I would know nothing among you, and that notice this, except Jesus Christ and him having been crucified. Now, th- this does not mean for a a moment that Paul was going to wipe everything out of his mind except this one sentence, Jesus died for your sins. But what it did mean is that, that Paul was determined to have Jesus Christ as the crucified Messiah as the very center and circumference of his message. It meant that he was absolutely committed to, absolutely determined to have Jesus Christ and him crucified as the focal point of his ministry. In other words, he says, I made the conscious determination that when I was going to be among you, I wasn't going to try to wow you with my rhetoric. I wasn't going to try to overpower you with Sophia. Now, by the way, if Paul wanted to, he probably could have done those things. But he says, when I was with you, what I decided was that I was going to have a simple message, a crucified Christ. A simple message communicated to you, by the way, in a crucified or simple style. Now, when we think about this, sometimes people look and say, I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified to mean that somehow Paul had a perspective on ministry where he just talked about the elementary principles of the gospel over and over and over again. You remember that in chapter 3, what he says to the Corinthians is, I wanted to talk to you as mature men and to give you solid food, 
but you're only accustomed to milk. You remember when he says that, sometimes people look at, well, milk is Christ and him crucified, and solid food is getting beyond that. Let me just, let me just make a footnote statement here. For the Apostle Paul, the gospel was not the beginning steps, the ABCs, from which you moved away from as you matured. That, by the way, was the error of the Corinthians. They thought Christ and him crucified. Well, that's great to get saved. But what we really need now is the Sophia, the wisdom that will help bring us into the next level of spiritual maturity. And for Paul, I think that the idea of milk is the idea that that you have Christ and him crucified as the message which brings you into God's kingdom by conversion, but you never move away from that. And so Christ and him crucified becomes then the uh, the meat, as it were, the solid food, is Christ and him crucified, now is the paradigm for the entire Christian life. In other words, for Paul, the gospel is never something that you move away from as you mature. It's something you go down deeper into as you mature. The cross is not a message that, that, that you turn around and you go, well, now that I've got that, now it's time to get on to the really meaty stuff. Paul's saying, no, the meaty stuff is the cross. It's what brings you into the kingdom and it should be what shapes the entirety of your perspective of the Christian life. And so Paul says, I was absolutely determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the subject of Paul's biblical preaching. Verses 3 and 4, the power of biblical preaching. First of all, Paul explains to us his personal condition. When I was with you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. A lot of people think that that the weakness has to do with some sort of physical weakness um, or physical illness. But but rather, I think that what Paul has in mind here, when he says, when when I came to you, I was with you in weakness, is what he's saying is, I, I absolutely was stripped away consciously and voluntarily, stripped away of all self-sufficiency so that I would rest wholly and completely, not on my education, not on my abilities, not on my gifts, but I wanted to be weak before you in order to show you what it looks like to rely wholly upon Christ and him crucified. Now, if the Corinthians were impressed with anything, it was power. And Paul says, when I was with you, I was with you in weakness, stripped away of everything except dependency on Jesus Christ. And then he says, and in fear and in much trembling. And I think that there's a sense in which Paul doesn't go into Corinth you can't read the book of Acts and deduce this from Paul, that, 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 that Paul's thinking, oh, wow, Corinth. It's like, it's like the San Francisco and Las Vegas of the ancient world all rolled up into one. What are they going to do to me? What a terrible place. I mean, I bet there's going to be slot machines and prostitutes everywhere. I can't, don't know if my, if my tender soul can bear it. You read Paul. Paul's fearless. So what does he mean when he says, I was with you in fear and in much trembling? I think that that has the idea that, first of all, the fear and much trembling has to do with a humble response to who God is and to the God who sent him, and it is absolutely opposite or antithetical 
to the pride and the strength of the cultured, sophisticated, intelligent rhetoricians who are full of wisdom that the Corinthians absolutely love. In other words, Paul is saying, when I was with you, I was absolutely determined to be the very opposite of everything that you came to cherish and to value and to hold dear. Why? Because if I made much of myself, if I puff up myself, if I make myself uh, the center of my ministry and I make my gifts the center of my ministry, I'm fundamentally doing something that is contrary to the very purpose of my existence and that is I'm eclipsing the gospel of Jesus Christ. A true minister of the gospel, whether you're a counselor, a pastor, a missionary, ordinary Christian, doesn't make any difference. A true minister of the gospel cannot go around and make both at the same time much of himself and much of Christ. It's either one or the other, not both. And so Paul says, I was just determined to make everything I did about Jesus Christ. And so I didn't want to be the very things that you take so much stock and pride in. And then in verse 4, we see Paul's ministry priorities. He says, my word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. When he says my word and my preaching, I think there's actually a distinction here between my word and my preaching. Some commentators think that word and preaching are just interchangeable, they're synonymous. But I think that word has to do with the content of Paul's message. And the preaching refers to the the delivery or, as it were, the means by which the message was communicated. And so Paul says, my word and my preaching, that is what I had to say and how I said it, were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Paul was actually against persuading people? Why talk to anybody if you're not interested in persuading them? Right? Why go and preach in synagogues if you're not interested in persuading? Why why actually go house to house? Why minister in a marketplace if you're not interested in persuading people? Paul was deeply interested in persuading people, but he was not interested in persuading people with the kind of message and the kind of delivery that were simply geared to move people at an emotional level without actually doing something underneath. And so Paul is not opposed to persuasion. Paul's not opposed to wisdom. But what he is opposed to is the kind of, is the kind of uh, overpowering personality that comes in with the kind of uh, rhetoric and, uh, and, 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 and impressiveness and the demonstration of power that's now going to move people to his position. He said, that's not what I want. I am not interested in employing the artificial method of rhetoric and persuasion. In Paul's day, a rhetorician could actually make a tremendous amount of money. Rhetorician would start with, um, with some sort of proposition. The more absurd the proposition, 
the more platform he has to demonstrate his gifts because if you could move people to agree to your position in spite of how absurd it was, you could make a lot of money because that's incredibly entertaining and you could accumulate quite a following. And Paul says, when I was with you, I understood that there was something at, at stake that was far greater than you liking me, than you thinking I'm gifted, than you thinking I'm impressive. In fact, so when I was with you, I was absolutely determined not to go that route. Ray Ortland Jr. says, Paul didn't even try to be impressive. He was too impressed with Christ. It didn't bother him that the Corinthians could see that he wasn't Mr. Cool. Brothers, it's the gospel, not in our skill of presenting the gospel, that God empowers. We live, we live in a day, and this is nothing new, all right? So don't think to yourself, we live in the worst of times. There is something about a Christian celebrity culture that is deeply and profoundly unpauline. The Corinthians were hung up on it because at the very beginning, Paul actually says, you know, I've heard through Chloe's people that there are divisions that exist among you. And by the way, the divisions were symptomatic of a deeper problem. But he says, some of you say, I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. And of of course, here were people that attached themselves to the kind of teacher that they thought was going to take them to the higher level. And of course, most of them probably were like pro-Apollos people and not pro-Paul people because Paul was not the impressive type. But Paul will remind these people that Apollos, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Nothing. Just simply servants through whom you believe. One plants, one waters. It's God who gives the increase. And so what I want to say to you today, which is absolutely comfortable for me because I'm just a nobody from Nevada, but what is Jay Adams? What is Jim Neuheiser? What is Vody Bauckham? What's Heath Lambert? Well, at the end of the day, guess what? Nothing. Just servants. It's God who gives the increase. It's God who causes the growth. It's God that transforms people's lives. If you start to think that you're something and you've forgotten that really you're nothing, Your usefulness will only be as good as your popularity, and even then, it will bring about no lasting change. Be careful, brothers and sisters, when people in church and the community start to seek you out for counsel because they've heard that you're good at it, that you're gifted at it. Remind yourself, paste it right up on your bathroom mirror, paste it up there, and just say to yourself over and over again, you know what? People may be seeking me out, but I'm, I'm still, I'm nothing. I'm Christ's servant. That's all. It's Christ who does the work. It's Christ who brings the increase. And so Paul says, I didn't come with those artificial methods, uh, uh, persuasive words of wisdom, which you guys love so much. But then he does say this, but I did come in the demonstration of 
the Spirit, and power. Now, this, of course, could be two things, the demonstration of the Spirit and the demonstration of power, but it it probably is actually a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so the Spirit's power, Paul says, when I came to you, what I wanted to do is I wanted to be in a state of weakness, utter dependence, to do nothing but preach Christ as the crucified one in utter dependence upon him, not in fancy words, not in rhetoric. I wanted to actually come and have a simple ministry, and not a simplistic ministry, but a simple ministry propagated and promoted among you in a simple way so that it would be in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, here's, here's where the text gets interesting, because Paul, just as Paul's not opposed to wisdom, just the Corinthian kind of wisdom, so he's not opposed to power. Now, he is opposed to the Corinthian perspective on power, which was in, which was in human strength and, and, uh, and, and, and popularity, but he is absolutely in tune with real power. Real spirit power, Paul says, is demonstrated through the preaching of Christ and him crucified. What this looks like is the preacher is gripped and the spirit is, is, is empowering and illuminating, first of all, the preacher. When the demonstration of the Spirit's power is at work, there's something that's actually happening in the preacher. One pastor, Albert N. Martin, says that this is a heightened sense of the spiritual realities in which we are trafficking as we preach. In other words, the demonstration of the Spirit's power is something that's happening in and through the preacher, not as he's actually putting on display his own power, but as he is utterly dependent upon the Spirit for power. This is what the old-timers would have called unction or the sacred anointing, where the Spirit of God comes upon the preacher in a way that he's gripped by the truth and preaches the truth with a peculiar power. But the Spirit's power is also demonstrated in the way in which the truth impacts those who hear. And so, now, and sometimes this is, this is deeply experiential. In other words, sometimes the preacher is, 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 is very aware of God's help. Other times the preacher may feel as if he's up there all by himself. Other times the preacher may think, wow, God really helped me. I nailed it today. And the wife says, were you feeling okay? You were, you were really off today. And then, then there are other times where, where the, the preacher feels like this was an absolute, utter failure. Nobody was listening. It was right after lunch. Nobody was paying attention. They were all full. And, uh, and so, what am I going to do? And then somebody comes up and says, you don't know how God took that message and ministered to me. And you start to realize, okay, so this really is Christ's word. It's not mine. It's under his control, not Mind. And so what happens when the Spirit of God is at work in spirit power is that those who hear can be humbled, 
They can be convicted. They can be persuaded. That's the good kind of persuasion, right? We want the persuasion that comes by the power of the Spirit. They can be changed and motivated to change even more. Now, let me say one thing that should be absolutely obvious through these first four verses, and that is the kind of power that Paul's talking about that comes from the Holy Spirit only comes when we are faithful in preaching Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit delights to glorify and magnify Jesus Christ. And so as we seek to honor Christ in the preaching, the Spirit will be pleased to honor the preaching because it's exalting Christ. You, you cannot expect to preach human wisdom and experience the power of the Spirit. You cannot expect to actually take, um, you know, your, your own thoughts and present them so, ever so polished and expect there to be the lasting change of the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not interested in magnifying nor honoring the human's thoughts or opinions. He is interested in magnifying Christ through the Word. The same is true in counseling. Now, Paul gives us the reason in verse 5. Here's why, negatively, I didn't do this, come to you in the ways that you love so much, and then positively, why I decided to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified and in weakness. Here's the reason, negatively first. In order that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men. (laughs) You understand how dangerous this is, right? Paul says, I could have come to you with Sophia. I could have come to you with rhetoric. I could have come to you with superiority of speech. I could have come to you with pyrotechnic displays and multimedia presentation and stuff that just absolutely overwhelms and blows you away. But at the end of the day, your faith would not be resting on anything other than the wisdom of man. Here's the danger. What seems wise today from human standards will next week be considered utterly foolish. Paul says, that's not what I did. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have your rest, your faith rest on my intellect. I would not have your faith rest on my personality. I would not have your faith rest on anything to do with me because I am a frail, fallen human being. I wouldn't have it rest on my wisdom because my wisdom amounts to nothing. I wouldn't have it... Uh, it, it you, have, you have to understand that this seems, this seems fairly obvious and straightforward to most of us here, but you have to understand that there is a whole church culture out there that actually does try to, through manipulation and through the use of human wisdom, to try to bring people to faith, and at the end of the day, their faith rests on nothing other than human wisdom. And Paul says, I wouldn't have that for anything in the world. I want your faith to rest in the power of God. I want your faith to be rooted and grounded and, 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 and sourced in the power of God. And here's, here's why. It should be obvious to us. Only God's power can change a human heart forever. Only God's power can change a human mind forever. 
No preacher, no counselor, no matter how gifted, can bring about certainty and faith. Only God can do that. And you talk about humbling. The next time you're sitting across from somebody and they're just pouring out their soul and bearing their problems and telling you about everything that's wrong in their life and they're so desperate for help, here's, here's what you need to say to yourself. Only God can help this person. Only God can change this person. Only God can transform that person. So, what is our conclusion? Well, we say, you know what? You're wasting your time being here because I can't help you. (laughs) That's not what you say. It's not what you say because the God who brings about transformation and change is the God who chooses to use means to bring about those ends and you are simply a means, but it is God, not you, that bring about the change in a person. Which also means that when a person doesn't change, that's not your failure. As long as you've been faithful to the word and have depended upon God and rested in him, it's not a failure. That actually, I look at that as success. If you as a servant are faithful to your calling, that's, that's your standard of success. Change, transformation, and results belong in the hand of of the power of God. It is the Holy Spirit that creates and sustains and grows faith. So David Garland, again, he says, faith is based not on how entertaining or informative or compelling the speaker is, but on the power of God transforming the hearts of the hearers. So, what's the connection with counseling? First of all, let me, let me give you a definition of preaching. Preaching is a verbal, authoritative proclamation of God's word, which has an appeal for a response. I, I think that's a fundamental definition of preaching. It's a verbal, authoritative proclamation of God's word, which has an appeal for response. Preaching is, is heralding, it's declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. Preaching as a means by which the Christ-centered word is proclaimed actually claims primacy of place in the ministry of the church and pastoral calling. Which is why pastors actually love, pastors who know what they're supposed to be doing, absolutely love to be, uh, to see people trained in their congregations so that people can go to them, uh, people in the body for help instead of always coming to the pastor. You, you have a, um, you have a demented pastor if he thinks he's the only one that can help anybody. You have a doubly demented pastor if he thinks (laughs) that he's the only one who should help anybody. Okay? And so the primacy of preaching is the pastor's primary calling. Study the word. Get ready to preach the word of God, right? Okay? And so that's the primacy of place in the ministry of the church and pastoral calling. 
Preaching, therefore, I would argue, has a unique claim to certain promises that other media, other modes of communication of the word, don't necessarily claim. Now, I would say, therefore, that preaching or counseling is not the same as preaching. Okay? It doesn't look the same. You don't have somebody come in and sit down on the couch and then pull out a pulpit and stand up in front of them and begin to expound the word to them, right? It it doesn't look the same. And so counseling is not preaching. And counseling does, does not necessarily claim all of the same properties of preaching. But counseling is still a ministry of the word, That's what we've been hearing, the necessity of the word in counseling. Counseling is predominantly, centrally, pervasively a ministry of the word. And so, biblical counseling has, for instance, this property, didache, teaching. Are you not teaching when you're counseling? Right? It also has a nutheteo. Exhortation, confrontation, loving confrontation, um, rebuke, exhortation. All of these words that define the preaching of the word also are things that are active in counseling. And so I would say that just as there's an overlap between preaching and teaching in the New Testament, there is, in a sense, an overlap of what we do in preaching and what we do in counseling. And so my conclusion is this. Counseling as a ministry of the word, first of all, must not rely on human ingenuity. The counselor, just like the preacher, just like Paul, needs to be stripped of all self-sufficiency. If the counselor is, is actually determined to be instructing and applying the Christ-centered word, then the counselor must have that posture of weakness and fear and much trembling, utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God, utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ, and in that utter and complete dependence, also hope for, pray for, and trust in a demonstration of the Spirit and power. Now, what does the demonstration of the Spirit and power look like in counseling? I mean, it looks like all different kinds of things. But let's, let's, let's reiterate this just to make sure that every single one of us is on the same page. I don't care whether you're a Baptist. I don't care whether you're a Methodist. I don't care if you're a Presbyterian. I don't care what you are. I don't care if you're a charismatic or a non-charismatic. The reality is, is that every single one of us as a biblical counselor must recognize the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit in our counseling. So John MacArthur writes, he says, the Holy Spirit is the necessary agent in all effective biblical counseling. So what does the demonstration of Spirit's power look like in counseling? Well, first of all, let's look at in the counselor. Do you believe 
that the Holy Spirit can actually help you listen. Well, you better believe that the Holy Spirit can help you listen because listening plays such a crucial role in what we do as we're trying to counsel people. We actually have to be quick to hear. Now, how many times, I I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many times have you sat there and you're, let's say, let's say you're, you, you have not come to that place of, of, of stripping away self-sufficiency. You think you're pretty good at this. You're listening to somebody and then you start talking and then you realize that the stuff that you're saying is absolutely completely unrelated to what they have just said because you didn't listen to them. Has that only happened to me? If, if, you, if you actually watch people counsel, a lot of times this, this ends up happening. You'll sit there and you'll be listening to somebody and they'll be talking about uh, their, their issues, their sin, whatever, and then the counselor starts talking. Well, you have to understand, there's a reason why that happens, and it is simply pride. We think that we've gotten so good at this, we're so, um, you know, we're so gifted, we're so trained. I mean, after all, I've been to like 26 summer institutes. I'm awesome. <laughs> and we're not listening. The first way the Spirit of God demonstrates His power in the counselor is by helping us to actually listen. Not relying on our own experience, not relying on our own gifts. Can the Spirit of God, in the midst of listening, actually begin to give insight and understanding? And the answer is absolutely. And that insight and understanding is not something that's predicated upon how trained you are or how educated you are. It is a sense of being utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God for help in that moment of listening with truly open ears and open hearts. The Spirit of God can and also does use us in our application of the Scriptures. I mean, do you actually think that the Spirit of God works in such a way that there you are ministering uh, to somebody and the Spirit of God actually begins to direct and guide what texts you're going to use? Or do you have a flow chart? How many of you thought you were going to start with a particular text? You hear something and you go to a completely different direction. The the Spirit of God does that. And He helps us. He guides us. And so we seek to honor Christ in the way that we use His Word. And as we do that, the Spirit of God actually honors and blesses our efforts. The Holy Spirit, as I said earlier, delights to glorify Jesus Christ, delights to glorify uh, what he's done for us in the cross. And so as we seek to apply that Christ-centered word to the people that we're ministering to, we should be absolutely dependent upon and expectant of the Spirit of God to come and to help us to do something in the counseling session that goes beyond our own natural human wisdom and ability. Have you ever had a sense that that God took over the counseling session? I'm preaching through Nehemiah on Wednesday nights and 
J.I. Packer has a delightful little book on Nehemiah, and J.I. Packer says, here's the definition of revival when God takes over. (laughs) I like that. And that's what I want in preaching, but that's also what I long for in the counseling sessions, for God to take over. I want them leaving, not saying, wow, Brian is such a nice guy. He's so understanding. He, he's so sweet. I mean, it's not like that's a common problem. <laughs> I don't even want people going, wow, he is a very good counselor. What I want is people walking away going, what a great savior. What a powerful word he's given to us, right? I don't want them worrying about me. I want them thinking about Christ. And you're not worth your weight in salt as a counselor if you're more concerned about what the counselee thinks about you than what he thinks about Christ. In fact, until you get over that, I just shut up. And so we have to seek We have to seek God and his help and the help of the Spirit as we enter in. I'll tell you what, there are are pastors in this room, and I will tell you that one of the most common prayers that we pray as pastors is we're standing there, and we know this is the last song, right, brother? It's the last song, and you're just like, Lord, help me. God, help me, please. I'm about to jump out of an airplane and pull a ripcord, and I'm depending upon you to make that parachute open. If it doesn't, the sermon is just splat. But if you come with power, much, will be, much good will be done. Help me, please. I would suggest to you that the same please of desperation should be ours when somebody is going to come in and talk to us and we counsel with them. You are about to talk to a never-dying soul. You are about to talk to somebody who is either going to spend all of eternity in heaven or all of eternity in hell. You're about to talk to somebody that is coming to you and what do they need more than anything else? Not your superiority of speech, not your human wisdom. What they need more than anything else is Christ giving hope. That's what they need. And in order for you to be able to communicate that to them effectively by the power of the Spirit, you better consciously be desperate upon the Spirit of God for help. So what about the Spirit and the counselee? Well, demonstration of the Spirit's power can be in conviction. That's something you would expect, isn't it? Have you ever had anybody that has refused to acknowledge their sin? (laughs) Duh. I mean, that's one of the hard things, right? You're talking to somebody and and you start to see like uh, all of this baggage and this sin and, and they just won't see it. So you start opening up texts. And guess what? 
They still don't see it. And you're trying to persuade them. And they still don't see it. They just think at this point you're a self-righteous jerk. But then, if the Spirit of God comes with power, there can be conviction that is only a work of God. The Spirit can humble the spirit, the spirit can give understanding. You ever been counseling a couple and they're sitting there and when they walk in, he goes, she's the problem. And she says, well, fat chance, he's the problem. And here you're talking to two people that neither one want to take ownership or responsibility. And the spirit of God comes with power, gives them understanding. So they begin to see, you know what? I've got a huge log in my eye. How does that happen? It doesn't happen because you're so good. It happens because the Spirit of God comes and does what He delights to do. And so I remind you again, the Spirit of God can bring real change through the Word of God, but we must be dependent upon Him and we must expect Him to do it. When I say expect him to do it, I don't mean expect him to do it in my time, in my way. But I mean whether this takes six minutes or six months. I'm going to faithfully do what he's called me to do, dependent upon his spirit, trusting that his word does not return void. If they need to go talk to somebody else, that's fine, that's good. But you know what? Real change comes through the word of God, by the spirit of God, and I believe he does it. I hope you believe he does it. Because if you don't believe he does it, you should do something else. So, I suggest to you that 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 is a great text for counseling. And so I would remind you, take that text, use it as a paradigm, use it as a pattern for you. Be anchored in Christ. Tie everything to the cross. Have that attitude of fear, trembling. Seek the help of the Spirit in counseling. Pray for a demonstration of the Spirit's power, not only in your words and in the life of the counselee, but even in your ability to listen. And so, brothers and sisters, if we seek to glorify Christ in our counseling, we will be utterly dependent upon him, and the Spirit of God will, in fact, be pleased to exalt and honor the Lord Jesus Christ in what we do. And so, Don Carson One of my favorite New Testament commentators says, as long as people are impressed by your powerful personality, impressive gifts, there is little, very little room for you to impress them with a crucified Savior. Seek to impress that counseled, that troubled soul with a crucified Savior, and the Spirit of God will be delighted to show up and take over. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that that in what we do, as you call us, Lord, to counsel people, to preach, to teach your word, Father, we pray that we would be the kind of men and women who are utterly and completely dependent upon Christ and him crucified. And we pray, Father, that as we seek to honor your son, that your spirit would be pleased to help by demonstration of his own power in our lives and our ministries. 
Father, we pray especially right now for those who have particularly difficult, challenging cases. Father, we pray for the grace of your spirit to be upon them. Demonstrate your power and your love and be glorified through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Copyright 2015 IBCD, all rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.